Joseph Bood, welcome to the Button Up Podcast. Thanks yeah. for coming on today. Yeah, I'm really happy to do this. This actually isn't the first time we've met. That's right. You were just telling me. Yeah. So I uh, worked for a startup, and we I was doing a photo shoot here, and I had to come and shoot the products that we were going to then test. Uh-huh. And I've worked with uh, dozens of brands across the world, mm-hmm. and you are one of two brands that ever came and checked on me doing a photo shoot of your products. It uh-huh. was you and Christian Dior. Well, that's good company for me. I can yes. say what a great brand Christian Dior is. But uh, uh-huh. well, you know, as a as a designer, you know, you're always. You're never not engaged. You're always engaged. You're always looking at your product and the images that you put out. So, yeah, uh, you know, I, I I don't know if I'm if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I am. You know, I'm compulsive when it comes to that. Oh yeah. Well, you're also one of the brands. Like growing up, my dad, my dad's closet was Tommy Bahama and Joseph Abood. Yeah, great. And combination. so you thought so. Like for me, you were just a mythical figure. And, <laughs> and that time meeting you in, in the photo studio was the first time I was like, Joseph Abood is a real person that walks yeah. around. Well, it's so funny because there are always so many people have said that to me over my career, you know. Oh, there really is a Joseph Abood. Well, most brands are, in it, you know, driven by an individual. So, yeah, I, I always looked at the label as um, a way of showing who you were for your customer, right? Mm-hmm. So the label is really something that people either respond to or they don't. So the product makes the label. The label doesn't make the product. It's very interesting how brands can either grow and become really powerful, like a Chanel, mm-hmm. well after Coco Chanel passed away, and um, or so many brands have lost their way and become just some letters on a label. Mm-hmm. And you keeping your hand on the steering wheel, though, seems like the reason that you've been able to reinvent yourself at different iterations in your career. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of iterations, and I really find that's kind of fascinating because it's... Uh, it's kind of like an adventure story, mm-hmm. really. I never really know what the next step is. I, I, I always know that I'm really driven by the creative process. That drives me every day. For you, did that really start off in your early merchandising days when you first started working in retail? You mean the whole creative thing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I always loved clothes. And so for me, even before I actually started working in the industry, I'd look at retail stores, I'd go shopping, whatever money I had, I would buy clothing. You know, I just, I loved it. I grew up in Boston, and so I'd go to all these great stores and just kind of look in the windows. Mm-hmm. And I always remember the great store that I worked in, which was Louis of Boston. I remember saying to myself, one day I'm going to buy a suit in that store. And so there are these, um, these succession steps or opportunities that I've taken one step and I've taken the next step and I've taken the next step. And I still feel that way today. There's always a next step until you stop being who you are. You know, mm-hmm. people, you, you retire from a job, you don't retire from who you are. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, it's sort of, that's, it's, that's who I am. It's the good or bad, it's the creative process that drives me. And putting day. your name on the door doesn't help keep you involved too. It, it does, it does, but you know, it's really at the end of the day, it's, it starts with like the right idea, the right concept, the right clothes, how to make guys in 2019, 2020, Mm-hmm. look their best it isn't about what happened in the past but good menswear has been driven by sort of these historic elements sort of Savile Row has always been sort of the standard for menswear sort of the modern modern menswear started there and about great tailoring and beautiful clothes and how to wear them we'll wear them different in 2019 2020 than we did in 1987 when I launched my first collection but it's great to see it evolve right now for I think for people that, that know your name, I, I would definitely recommend checking out the Blamo podcast. You did a really like deep dive into your background on yeah. that one. Yeah, but I, I feel like you were 
uh, your career, you know, really starts when you leave Ralph Lauren right. and you go out on your own. Right. Now, that was in 86. Yeah, so I launched, well, the first Joseph Abood collection was 1987. It was the spring 1987 collection, so it was 1986 mm -hmm. when I started putting that together. And while you were there, though, like, what, do you have the entrepreneurial itch to say, like, I'm working for a very fast-growing brand, very prestigious brand, I, but I still need to do my own thing? Yeah, that's the, that's the question of defining who you are. So there was no better job in my life than working for Ralph Lauren, working directly with Ralph. And, you know, Ralph and I had a wonderful relationship to this day. We still do. But I knew that it was something different in terms of what I wanted to do and what I wanted to say. I had felt that American menswear at that time uh, was very traditional, very preppy, and it didn't have the same kind of sex appeal or sensuality that a lot of the European brands had. But I wanted to do it in an American way, different color palette, different fabrics, different shape. And so that 1987 launch was very successful for us because I think we hit a nerve. Yeah, and you're also in that group of, you know, you think of Tommy and, and Ralph and even Donna Karen. Like right. there was, that was really the seismic shift in the fashion industry going from people shopping at manufacturers to now thinking about labels. That's right. And That's I think, right. did, did you see that happening and that was part of the, the impetus? Uh, in a way, but I don't think I was that strategic. Okay. I, I, I wish I, I had been, but I don't think it was that. Because I had loved clothes all my life and worked at retail and worked for one of the greatest companies in the world, Ralph Lauren, and with Ralph, that I just saw this void. You know, experience is an amazing thing. It's, you know, when do you launch your own company? When do you start it? I, it was organic for me. And I thought, you know what? I didn't think anybody really wanted a new label. So I said, I think the night before I opened my first collection, what am I doing? I've, I've left this great company that I was working for. And I'm launching a collection. Nobody knows who I am. Mm -hmm. And why did I do this? You know, it's a little bit of the stage fright. But I realized, and I'm looking back, that um, there was something in the market that was missing, sort of a, a modern American menswear approach to style that didn't exist because it was all just so preppy, so Ivy League, so traditional. And then, of course, the Europeans were, uh, you know, much faster and fits were different. So it really worked. But I, I don't think it was because I wanted to see my name on the label. I didn't really think of it in those terms. And prior to that, the manufacturing names like we know, like the Hickey Freemans and the Hart Chapter Marks, were what men knew in the 70s. And mm -hmm. even Italy, I, I think I've mentioned this before, but Italian designers didn't really emerge until the 70s. They were mostly manufacturers. The French designers really dominated the 60s. Mm -hmm. So... Um, you know, it's kind of fascinating how the labels are important or not important. Yeah, and you've said that your experience in Paris was really transformational for yeah. you. And then, but that that informs where you went with your own line. But that's also around the time you started having a family too, right? So on the personal side of things, you were having children and growing a family. Right. Well, well, interestingly enough, so um, I'm a little bit of an older dad. So my first daughter wasn't born until I was forty, and. Um, I remember, I have two girls now, and you know they're the best creations in my life. Uh, but um, I remember when I had my, my daughters, I said to myself, I don't want to have someone else define who I am. I want to be able to look in the mirror and define who I am and control my own destiny. Mm -hmm. And the reality of the fashion business sometimes is we all try to get the covers of magazines, and you know it's a vicious battle often, and... Um, I don't want to play that game. I, I feel my, 
I'm more of a craftsman. This is what I do. I love my craft. I love doing it. If there's recognition from it, well, that means someone likes my work. Mm -hmm. So that's really been great. But yeah, having my family, well, well, they've always kept me grounded to make sure I know who I am. Right. You know, I don't get too big ahead, you know, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you got to get home and get everybody's... You know, you're, I'm just dad. You know, <laughs> there's a number of stories about, um, you know, my, my well, Lila, who's my older daughter one time. She was probably about 12. I came down. I was going to a board meeting, and I had on a, a beautiful gray flannel suit, and I had a tie on. And I, and I said to her, how do I look? And she said, oh, you look great, Dad, but do you really like that tie? And I said to her, Lila, do you know who I am? I'm... I'm Joseph Abood. And I looked at the mirror, and I went upstairs, and I changed my tie. And so it shows you that you can't take yourself too seriously. You're always going to be dad. But um, it also shows how people, also the people, the women in your life very often can, can be an influence on your own style. You know, your mom, your sister, your wife, your daughter. So it's really interesting how, um, you know, clothes play for both men and women. Yeah, exactly. And now in that phase too, so like late 80s into the 90s, that was also when a lot of outsourcing was happening in the industry and mm -hmm. moving to Asia and yeah. the manufacturing. Right. But you always had kind of that, that root in the manufacturing yeah. in Boston. Yeah. Well, the, the factory in New Bedford, Massachusetts, which we, uh, you know, I'm so proud of. It's been making my clothing since I launched in 1987. We have about 800 people there. And, uh, you know, it's one of the, my proudest accomplishments is that we had an idea, mm -hmm. just an idea. And I remember when I... You'll appreciate this. When I launched the first collection, a lot of the editorial around it was, it's really great, but it's very editorial. Now, that's a way of saying, well, it's not really commercial. It's not going to sell. Mm -hmm. So the first year we launched the, uh, the Joseph Boot Collection, we sold 2,000 suits out of that factory. In the last few years, we've done about 340,000. And so it's all been made in America, and it's grown with the brand, and I'm so proud of it. And, and it was, it was, we did it before it was cool to make in America because my partners wanted, if you're an American designer, you should try to make in America. So right. it was great. And now at that time, did you bring mentorship along with you from Ralph Lauren? Or like, how did you find mentors in that, in that earlier stage of your career to kind of guide you? Well, you know, the two great, the, my two, my two heroes are Ralph Lauren and, uh, <clears throat> And my old boss, Mari Perlstein from Louisa Boston, who was a great retailer. You really have to merge the design side with the retail side. Mm -hmm. But I had enough experience for all of the years that I had been working is to bring in and create my own design teams. And I always, when I looked or hired designers, it wasn't always the most creative designer. I always looked for the most intelligent designer because we're problem solving. That's what we do all the time. Mm -hmm. Like, how does a guy live? How does he use his clothes? And so we have to think about that, not just to paint, paint the pretty pictures, but really, you know, how do guys dress and can we be there before he's there? Mm -hmm. Can we know what he needs before he does? Emotional so. IQ before, uh, yeah. before the total IQ. Yeah, and, and, you know, I really have always been able to put together some great design teams who understand the process of thinking through, you know, designing product. Yeah, and so through the years, you went through a, a few legal battles yeah. over your name. Yeah. You've kind of reclaimed it, and yeah. now, just a few years ago, uh, I guess now a few more than that, you joined Men's Warehouse. Yeah. And at the time you were coming up, I mean, I'm sure you kind of watched George do his thing with Men's Warehouse yeah. and just build that empire yeah. uh, through those years. So, like, yeah. like had, had he was in the industry and you kind of knew right. about each other? Right. Well, I've, I've known George for a long time, and, you know, the world changes rapidly. What was right when he launched, or I mean, his business is 40 years old, or Men's Warehouse is 40 years old. 
the world's a different place, the way men shop, the way men don't buy clothes by the pound anymore, mm-hmm. right? The, and maybe your dad's generation would be, well, I need five suits because I wear a suit Monday to Friday. And, and, and guys bought clothing where they could buy a lot of suits. Today, it's much different. So the world, even the world that I started is a different world. Although interestingly enough, some of the tenets, some of the ideas or some of the concepts about softening men's dress and making it more like a woman's wardrobe was my first idea in 1987, is to be able to be more flexible and as I said, a little sexier, a little more appealing. Um, But seeing George and built a retail uh, world, to me, the future of our industry is vertical. That's the future of the world. There aren't as many retailers to sell today, unfortunately. and very often, the retailer may not interpret the brand the appropriate way. So if you can control your own destiny by making your own product, selling it online, how you need to sell it, or in your own stores, you have much better control of your destiny. Right. Yeah. So now, like, in, in the kind of machinations, you know, like, George is, is no longer with this, but you also merged Josephay Bank and Men's Warehouse. Right. So we're now at the Taylor Brand headquarters. Right. One of the major ones there. And you are the head designer. Right. To oversee a lot right. of that. Right. And, you know... But you also have your flagship store right. and your e-com store. So right. it seems like you were able to say, like, this is what's going on in the market, and now this is what I have to do. The great thing about the store is it's the leader for everything we do within, the, within Men's Warehouse in terms of new ideas, new fabrics, new color concepts. So we use that very often as a laboratory. That store also serves as an incredible uh, opportunity for our licenses. Our, uh, we have about 100 shops in Japan. Joseph Boutchoff, we have a great partner called Onward Kashiyama. And they come and very much are inspired by what we do at that store, the way the windows look. It's really important to continue to present great menswear, like that great men's specialty store. Mm -hmm. So it isn't just about price, and it's not just about promotion. It's about great product, well-styled. And that's why it's important. And, And to have, as tailored brands, we need the discipline to understand uh, the dynamics of each brand we have. Mm-hmm. Joseph A. Bank should be positioned as the hippest, coolest, traditional place for a young guy to shop. Men's Warehouse can be more of a house of brands where we can offer a variety of labels. And Joseph Abood, which has always been kind of our, you know, our crown jewel in terms of Made in America, that also represents something different. So it's our obligation as tailored brands to make sure we define each brand properly yeah and how do you think of that as a designer to say like here's your hero the product the joseph abood line but then you can also get joseph abood in each of the brands i believe in all of our brands and i believe that it's a price value proposition it isn't about price i think the greatest myth in the world is that people buy price they don't buy price what they do is they buy the best they can for the price they can afford Mm -hmm. so just because someone is 50 off or 60 off or 70 off doesn't mean it's enticing to, a, especially to a millennial who really looks behind a label. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, our diffusion, our Joseph Abu diffusion, which is in our men's warehouse stores, is a great product. But we have just happened to be top shelf with the, the single flagship store that we have. And there we'll use Indian Lauren Piana fabrics at a much higher level and we'll style more aggressively. So it's much easier to do it for one store than it is for 700, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, a brand should be blind. It shouldn't matter where you buy a label. If the label is authentic, it shouldn't matter whether you've got it on sale or on a website or if it's a brand that has your label on it, it better be good. Because mm-hmm. there's no quicker way to destroy a, a brand or a label than by 
just throwing it on a bunch of products. Yeah, I like because you described the flagship store as kind of like your lab, and I right. think about um, there's like the Devil Wears product where she says, you know, that that blue color came from this runway, which then trickled down to this, and Absolutely. like it goes right down the line. But, Absolutely, but that's your hero, and that's what can push forward. Right. But then the guys that aren't really ready to go. That's right. I mean, it all starts somewhere. When we do shows, we did a big show in uh, last uh, last January or February, and it was um, it was a great show, and it was very. It was really an ode to Ellis Island and to uh, kind of my grandparents who came through Ellis Island. But those people came through very proud. They were humble, but they were proud. And they tried to dress whatever their culture was or their her heritage. They tried to present themselves properly. And I always admired that. Whether it was, And that's why we washed all of the clothing and we did some capes and wrapped belts around it. And we had a lot of fun doing it. But that's a message or an inspiration that then has to filter back into the commercial collections, right? Mm -hmm. But color palettes, textures, details, all come from that. Those who don't understand fa what fashion shows are think, well, it's just a frivolous experience. In fact, it sets the tone and sets the direction for your entire brand. And then you just diffuse it. You just say, okay, well, we know we're not selling, you know, uh, five patchwork coat all day long, but you know what? Those fabrics work together beautifully, so maybe we do the jacket with the best. And then you bring it back to reality so that you can sell it. But you need to send the emotion or the scent out. That's what women's wear does better than men's wear. Women somehow have the ability to make the interpretation from runway to real life. Mm -hmm. Men have struggled with that. Yeah. They just have, most guys. Well, even now what a lot of brands seem to struggle with is the, the shortening of the runway to the store, right? Because now people see it on Instagram when it hits the runway yeah. and they want to buy it in a way that they couldn't before because you were showing a season early. That's right. And so if if you're looking at the, the retail industry now, you went from manufacturing era, I mean, yes. pre, pre that, manufacturing era, designer era, and now we're kind of like in the the Facebook marketing and era. immediate gratification era. Yes, right. Yeah. Well, it, it, there are certain things you can do and certain things you can't do. Manufacturing takes time. You know, there are certain large companies that are brilliant at it. I mean, you got to give Zara a lot of credit for what they do. Um, and you know what I love about Zara is I love the fact that one month they could be um, extraterrestrial sportswear, mm -hmm. and the next month. They can have black and white glen plaid double-breasted jackets mm -hmm. with gray flannel pants. They are, they have, the words I always use, they have creative courage. They're going to show you a story. And that story might be for 30 days, and then on it goes to something else. And I just am fascinated by, and I admire that, because right? I just walked by their black and white glen plaid coat, double-breasted jacket. And I love it. I love what they do. So got to give them credit. But it is harder to do that in terms of being immediate gratification for more in menswear. Well, what you also have now is a shift into even more custom, like men's warehouse is getting yeah. more made yeah. to measure and custom. And like from a person who couldn't buy off the rack before to now seeing so many brands really invest in that. That's great. It seems like that really is a way well, forward. Right. Well, custom is really a form of specialization and individuality. Mm -hmm. So growing up, custom was either for the extremely wealthy or the hard to fit. That's what custom was. Custom's now a choice. You want to have a three-piece suit. You want a flannel suit. You may not find that on the rack, but you want something special. And that allows you to go as far as you want to, right? Oh, I want a red lining, or I want a printed lining, or 
you know, I want pleated trousers. I want all of this sort of thing. It's really fun. It's fun to see the young guy getting engaged into that. Yeah. And it's definitely an enthusiast, though, because, like, there's still guys that just want to walk in and, and buy Well, yeah. Suits. You know, but I think that every guy wants to be perceived a certain way, even the guy that doesn't get dressed up. So if he's got a special occasion, it's got a wedding or, or a special event, I think he wants to feel like James Bond. Every guy does. Mm-hmm. They may not have the confidence to know how to do that. So that's always been my job. How can I give not the fashionista, not the smart fashion guy, I want him, but how can I give all Americans a way of looking at dressing that allows them to feel good about themselves? Yeah. Body types, right? If you're going, you know, if you're, you know, you, you know, when we talk about L.A. and New York, we may be more aggressive in styling. But in the middle of the country, people may be a little bit more conservative. Mm-hmm. So how do we make them feel good about the clothes they buy? Yeah. And that's, for my, my whole career, is about educating and teaching men how to feel and look good. And I think that's really important. That's my mission. My mission isn't to sell more clothes or to make myself a celebrity through a label. But really, how can I? Because it's been my goal. And you mentioned Paris before. When I lived in Paris, when I went to the Sorbonne, uh, my junior college, I'd never seen an experience like that where men on the street were well-dressed and they weren't in the fashion business. Mm-hmm. Right now, I'd just be in awe of flannels and double-breasted. And, and I said, oh, my God, it's like a runway show for me here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I've tried to help American men understand, that you can dress stylishly for the way you live. Mm-hmm. You know, Maybe a, a banker or a lawyer may be a little bit more conservative, but an architect or an artist may be a little more creative in his wardrobe. You know, a journalist can have more fun with it. So, you know, I really, I really like to celebrate the difference and help men understand within whatever they do how they should do it. Yeah. And how do you look at now with the the increasing amount of like sustainable sustainable fabrics? Yeah. And the, yeah. The industry is really seeming to embrace the fact that it has it has done pollution, but now there's like things to kind of com- counteract that. Right. So part of me thinks that uh, I just delivered our 2020 trend report that I do to the company, the entire company, and one of the trends, um, and I'll give you a copy of it, um, is called the new norm. So the new norm is. Traceability, sustainability, recyclability are words that get used every day from product to packaging. I don't think we've figured this all out yet. Mm -hmm. Part of me believes that someday the world may ban the production of non-recyclable products because we we can't, and I'm not not a a zealot, but we can't continue to produce things we can't get rid of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. That's what... Uh, there's one. There's one guy who will know who he is that emails me about. You know, yes, bamboo is a great material for some of the stuff, but actually the production isn't that great. And like we're kind of all over the place, right, and right. it's still very early days. Yeah, but we are early in this. Yeah, I'll let you take one of these. All right. So I have in hand the fall 2020 uh, yeah, trends. Report, I'm going to yeah. study this for. Yeah. Uh, well, you can some do my it upcoming your, videos. Yeah. At your yeah. Um, so what I do every year is, well, along with our design team, we put together six to eight trends, color trends ideas. Um, if you open to the first page, go ne- go to your next page, and this was, uh, it's called, the first trend is called Generation S suit. And if you look at that, it says splitting the suit atom, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. The suit isn't just one thing anymore. Mm-hmm. So I've broken it down into three categories of where the suit's gone. The sartorialist, uh, the new utilitarian, and the non-suit suit. So um, I work hard at thinking through the evolution of our of design and our product and where men are going to go. 
The millennials aren't the only consumers, but they are a big driving force. So if we can get inside their heads and understand that they're going to be the next important generation for our business, how do we talk to them so they understand it? You know, the reason I probably bought one of my first, like, real suits and ties is Mad Men. So I'm one of the millennials that was swept up in the Mad Men See what I mean? uh, generation. And, and you know what you have? You have something called genetic memory. You don't know that. But why do guys love navy blazers or gray suits? Or, because something tells them that that's something they need in their lives. Mm-hmm. And I particularly love that. I'm, I love the fact that there's a – and now with this generation, there's more ability to know about things. If you really like something, when I was growing up, you just had to kind of find it. Mm-hmm. Now it's instant gratification. So if you wanted to know about Savile Row, just Google it. Yeah. Right. So, but you know, I was the guy that had to go over to London and go to the back rooms, and although I love that, you know, it's much easier to find that information. I know it's not the same experience now. Can't uh, it's sneak different. Out to a different country. No, it's different. It's it's different. But um, there's nothing like the real experience of seeing, feeling, and touching. Yeah. You know, that's why shopping online is a tricky game for suits you know yeah you could buy a sweater maybe you could buy a shirt if you know your size but trying to buy a suit online every brand's specs and fits are different Mm -hmm. you know for your body type and uh so it makes it makes it challenging that's something that like suit supply has done really well it's just put stores everywhere it's like for a suit manufacturer like that to hit price points but still put stores not just in soho but in dallas yeah there's a big one in boston they've done a great job and, um, you know, what they've done is they've kind of avoided the noise. And so what I, so, and I, cause, you know, I'm a student of all of this stuff. They've, they've said, hey, we are in the fashion business. They don't worry whether the lapel is too wide. They don't worry about if the scoots, suit's too skinny. God bless them. I think, it's a, I think that creative courage is everything. Mm-hmm. If you believe in something, do it. And, and that's always been my motto in terms of building a brand. You can't be all things to all people. So a banker might not walk into suit supply, but a young investment guy might. So, you know, it's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Is there any other brands that you, like, uh, try to keep an eye on? You know, I, I sort of study them all. I mean, I look at my old boss. I look at Ralph and, you know, see how they've been very true to their brand. And obviously, you know, as a brand that's 50 years old, they're still very vital and still very powerful. Mm-hmm. Probably always thinking how to catch the new customer but uh they've done a great job on that and you know i admire him because he's very disciplined about he's true to his brand he doesn't stray i was talking to some cobblers and they were talking about how like designer and luxury shoe brands don't really make their shoes well but he said the one person that does is ralph lauren and i was like that was that was really cool it's interesting right well you know it's always that sort of quality and like pizzazz and like flash so i like a little bit of both i always like to think think there's quality behind if someone's going to go out and spend a lot of money on something it shouldn't just be for the name or the fact that it's really hot there mm-hmm. should be some value to it it's kind of like buying a rolex watch you know or or a bmw or you know always hoping that there's some style to it but there's also something behind it yeah you know? it's like well it's it's the uh steve jobs painting the back of the fence just as well as the front it's because you can feel the quality it's a hundred percent yeah i can always 100%. remember my first ipod mini it's yeah, like, yeah. I'll never forget it. A hundred percent. You know, it's funny that you say that because um, that business was built on creativity. That wasn't built with consultants or analysts. That build business was built on an idea. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you need the discipline of you know strong financials and and some data. But it doesn't start there. It starts. The, it's combustion. 
right? The idea is combustion. That's where businesses start and, and then have a vitality. The suit supply thing, for the guy just decided he wanted to be in the suit business. He didn't really, I mean, it's an interesting story. Uh, and he didn't have a lot of data and a lot of analysts. He just said, no, oh, I want to do this kind of cool thing. Mm-hmm. That's where real cre- creativity is born, and that's how businesses become the Apples, the Microsofts of the world. Well, earlier I mentioned that you were a mythical figure, kind of like Tony Bahama, but the other person I would equate to is uh, Eddie Bauer. There were yeah. Eddie Bauer expeditions. There's also yeah. a Joseph Abood uh, GM, like Sierra, right? Yeah. And you did that thing. So That was fun, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That was fun. Uh, you know, you've, you've been very prominent in, in raising money for breast cancer awareness, yeah. and I think that's something to touch on, too, is like you've been very yeah. philanthropic as you've found yeah. success. If you save one person, you save the world. That's always, that's my, you can't do everything for everybody. You know, my mom and my, uh, and my sister passed away from breast cancer. And so with uh, the CFDA, we, um, it was really kind of great. We, we were designing, it was called Concept Cure, and we were designing cars to raise money, individual cars. So I ended up designing this uh, GMC Sierra, and uh, it was really cool. It kind of was like right out of Indiana Jones. It had Sherling seats. I put a map on the ceiling, so a sepia map. And I had taken a stone from Nantucket and put a worry stone in the console so that if you're sitting in traffic, there were leather straps holding the back. And I, I desperately wanted that. Well, they should have made two. They should have made two, <laughs> but we only made one. However, I was so proud because it raised the most money mm-hmm. for breast cancer. I think we raised $250,000 on the sale of that car. And um, I have pictures of it somewhere, but I, I think it was this bronze color, and I thought... Like, I was surrounded by my environment while I could be driving. It's really cool. And then I ended up uh, working with General Motors on designing some cars for them. So, yeah, it's, it's fun. I think the creative process can go in a lot of different directions. That's right. All right, well, we have a few rapid-fire questions we ask every guest. Yeah. These are, uh, like, one or two-word answers. You okay, I'll try it. If I, you know me, I, I may not be able to do it, but I'll try. All right. It's, it's, I think you'll be all right. All right. Um, all right. What's your preference? A lot of these are preference. Yeah. So, Oxfords or Brogues? Oxfords. Uh, morning shower or evening shower? Morning shower. Cardio or lifting? Cardio, because I play squash. Oh, very nice. Uh, your favorite Bond actor? Oh, Sean. I mean, it's, it's no question. Sean Connery. It's a very generational thing. Young guys will say uh, Daniel Craig. Or I, he, by the way, let's just... Second is Daniel Craig. Okay. So from him to Daniel... Daniel Craig's fantastic. I yes, love him. I know. I can't wait for the new one. Yeah, I, 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 I love him. I follow the set photos and see what's going on. I love on. him. <laughs> uh, the last book that you read... Oh my goodness, the historian. Yeah, because you're uh, in philosophy and literature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of uh, a lot of behind that. So loafers or sneakers? Loafers. Spring, summer, or fall, winter. Oh, yeah. easy fall, winter. Easy, yeah. And uh, if you're like getting in the shower to pump yourself up, what song are you playing? Oh my God, how to save a life? Uh, with a fray. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. You've, you've survived rabbit fire. Yeah. <laughs> What's uh, it, we always ask too? Like, what what is something that uh, somebody would, would be surprised to learn about you that they might not know. That I have an amazing sense of humor. Okay. That I actually, yeah, I, I have to curtail it a little bit, but um, I think humor is, is sort of, the, you know, the great, the great medicine of, you know, just it, when things are tough, or I just really find the humor. And when I wrote my book, Threads, there's a lot of humor in the book because I don't think you can take yourself so seriously mm-hmm. in life. We all do what we do. You know, I'm, I design clothes. So I haven't found a cure for 
cancer. Or, so I know my place in the universe. I know what I do. And, um, but I want to love what I do, and I want to have humor in it. I really do. I want to be able to smile about it. And uh, yeah, I get as serious and as tense as everyone else does about things, but in the bleakest, darkest moments, I try to find the humorous side of it. You know? And you get your own stage when you get to present to the company, and so you can... Yeah, well, I throw, you know, there's a lot of things. When I do my trend report, I, you know, I always try to, I think if you look at the, look at the first line there, uh, right over there. Sweet the man. Naked people have little or no influence on society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was Mark Twain. So, yeah, I always look for the, for the humor in it. And I think um, it tends to bring people together when things are difficult. I think humor is really an important aspect of our lives and can't take ourselves too seriously do you have favorite comedians oh god i can't think of it right now but do you uh, study comedy or not no like, not in like that sense mm-hmm. not in that sense um you know and it might be generational because i love a lot of the old comics and all because i thought they were brilliant and this may be controversial but i don't mind throwing it out because of what he's been through but one of the most brilliant minds in comedy is woody allen mm-hmm. in terms of his stand-up in the 60s and I have if you look listen to the content he's brilliant it's not vulgar and it's and it makes sense so I always love also I love you know intelligent humor I really do I think w- whether it's today's generation or what we came from the past but I do like it that's some, some of the reasons there's like comedic rap and the comedic rap is so clever and so sharp that like that's why I enjoy it so much. Isn't that you have to be. It's well, comedy. I see it very parallel to fashion, where Woody Allen's sets are his fashion shows, and that's where he like really hones his craft. But then that carries into the movies, which right. is for a little bit more of the mass. And then beyond that would be you know a book that he writes or something. Right, right, like right. That. And so it's like you know, he's honing it up here, and you can see that the it's high a level of intelligence, right? And then it just kind of rolls. Right well, that's right. Well, that's the thread, and that's why I called the book Threads. That's why I called it Threads because it. What I do, it's, it's sort of woven through my life, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's color or style, how does it work in my home or how I feel about, you know, a sunset. Or, and I always think we can never capture nature. We, we try hard. You can never catch those colors. If you look at a sunset and I say, is, it, is that pink or is that yellow? I can't tell. It's brilliant. I mean, Mother Nature is like the best fashion show you're ever going to find. So those things sort of are permeated through my life, just kind of the, my experiences about my surroundings, the people I'm with, the moments I have, and they don't have to be uh, glamorous at all. Right. Yeah, there's definitely the, the other thread through a lot of your stuff, though, is the importance of family and the people around you yeah. as well. Yeah, well, even, um, even um, some of my happiest moments at work is if I'm sitting here late looking at swatches. I don't need a lot of people around. If many times I'm doing it by myself. I just and I and I always say this to my design team and it's a good way to look at life. I always say to them, "Okay, go out and find something I don't know. Show me something I don't know. Just do that. You know, whether it's a swatch or a silhouette, find something that we haven't seen." And it forces them to keep their creative thoughts on a higher plane, right? And uh and that's what I I do that to myself all the time. Show me something I don't know. It's good. You always got to keep discovering. Yeah. So what are you most excited for in the, in the next like year? Like what's, what's kind of the next thing you're excited about? Well, I think the shift in the focus on I, I'm, I'm thrilled that there is so much focus on men's fashion. I'm thrilled me, me about too. it. Um, well, yes, <laughs> for the obvious reasons. And uh, that um, the, the intellect of the new consumer is something we can't take for granted. 
the young consumer is a much smarter consumer today than we were at the same age because of the age of information. Mm -hmm. So if they want to know a brand, they go in, they research it, they're really smart about it. I think it's going to challenge manufacturers and designers to understand we have a much more intelligent audience. And price alone is not going to get you to buy a suit or a jacket. It's got to, and it doesn't matter what that price might be. If it fits your budget, great. But it better fits your personality and your style. So I'm most excited about where young guys are going and they're getting dressed. The suit is not dead, by the way. It's just, as I told you before, it's just morphed into something different. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you can even see it in the collections as we walk through your office here. It's, it's a lot more separates. There's a yeah, lot. That's right. You know, they're still tailoring, but it, you're, you're breaking it up in a way that it wasn't before. That's right. And that's how I launched my very first collection. The very first season we launched was really about separates. And that's when we got our first shop at Bergdorf Goodman, mm -hmm. that very first season. So we touched a nerve then, and it's still being evolved and continuing in that same way that men are loosening up the way they dress. That's great. Joseph, thank you so much for uh, supplying my father, half of my father's. Yes, and, yes. Well, tell him I said hello. Everything you did, and uh, we're glad to have you on the podcast, and great, excited to see you, what comes out of 2020 trends. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you for listening to the Buttoned Up Podcast, a collaboration between John Shanahan of The Cavalier and Brock McGough of Modest Man, and we will see you next week. Well, you know, the funny thing about the James Bond thing, so if you really study James Bond and you look at, if you, the one movie where the clothes are specifically really good is Goldfinger. Yes. So it's the gray sharkskin suit that he's ruffled up in. He plays golf, and after he's golf, he's got on this sort of beautiful, in my mind's eye, I know what the fabric is, this nail head brown jacket and like a covert trouser and maybe a brown suede boot. And I'm saying to myself, I mean, this guy was like the perfect, his tuxedos were perfect, you know. Now, Daniel Craig's were great. Let's not, they were great. And he dresses well, and he's got the physique, he can wear it. But there was something very sort of tailored Savile Row about and don't forget, that's 60s, okay? So there's a little flair to the coat. Another interesting movie, and maybe at some point you might think about this, clothes in the movies, if you haven't done that oh, already. Yeah. I've done a couple of James Bond videos. I'm friends, there's a guy who runs the suit of James Bond, and he he goes into the most extreme detail on his suits, where they came from, how they were made. That's fantastic. And, like, and I did a, a couple of videos where he I took some of his blog posts and then added Oh, that's to fantastic. To make them into to videos, because... Um, He's very critical of Tom Ford and like where it's gone today. He loves Roger Moore and Sean Connery. Those are like the two that he really right. focuses right. on. But I have that the Glenn Plaid check suit. That yeah. was one of the suits that I was like, I gotta have. That's, like, the, that's the perfect that's suit. That's the perfect suit. He wears it with a black tie, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, black grenadine tie. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. Well, the other thing too is I was just watching um, Marathon Man, which is a film in the '70s. Dustin Hoffman, Roy Scheider. Now this is kind of the era that I grew up, and I was watching it closely. Uh, Lawrence Olivia plays a bad guy in it. But Roy Scheider is Dustin Hoffman's brother. And he's sort of this international. He's, so his suits are fascinating to me. That period of time, there was a lot of flair to the bottom of the coats. Mm -hmm. So they were longer coats, and they kind of gave you this presence. So the sh coats went like this, and it, we called it a flare. The coat had a flared coat, or it had a skirt. That's the terminology we used. Uh, very much like a riding jacket. The trousers tended to be slightly flared, and guys wore heels. So a lot of the, let's say, a Chelsea boot back then, the heel might have been that mm -hmm. high. So the way the pants sat 
on a guy that was well built. There was this sort of Hardy Amy's moment that was, oh my God. You know, and it was, I know it's dated, but it was so beautiful. So there's these eras of time that we can take and look at, and then we can translate it into what should be for 2020, 21. Yeah. But it's, it's inspiring. Well, in the way that you can't really take Leo's suit in The Wolf of Wall Street from the 80s, right? Uh, the, the, like right out of Goldfinger, <laughs> those suits would look good today. Amazing, it's right? It's the way that it, it all comes around. Like, th- that suit wouldn't look great in the 80s because it would right. look old. But right. now that we're 50 it's, years it's out. Exactly, it exactly. So sometimes the cycles change slightly differently. But we've been through, when we did, when we launched in the 80s, we were replicating the 30s. Right. Yeah. Because shoulders were bigger, all the films like the the Hollywood stars of the '30s, all they all had stylists. I mean, they were groomed by the studios, right? Their wardrobes. There's some great like leading men books and things where you look at like Gary Cooper. He's got this tweed coat on with this really beautiful paisley scarf, and you go, if men could only only dress like that. And so those are the things, and I love the fact that your generation, especially you, are doing this because someone has to carry the torch for men. It isn't about price only. It isn't about conformism. It's about individuality. Mm-hmm. And I love that. And this generation, and I have two daughters, one's 28, one's 25, as I told you. Like, I use all their boyfriends as my focus groups, right? They, mm-hmm. they're all, they all look like you. They all came out of like the good central casting. They all guys, could, you could all be runway guys. Um, and you know, I look at them and I sort of understand, like they don't want too much flash. Mm-hmm. The younger guy is interesting in a weird way, although he wants leaner and slimmer mostly, he tends to be more, well, no, I don't want anything too bold or he's not buying from our brands like Igara or he's buying things that have a little bit more longevity. And I love, I'm, I'm just, I'm having the best time. Some of the comments I get my, on my YouTube videos like, why are why is everything you view you review so boring? And like to me, it's like the, I can't believe anyone would say the that. The idea is like permanent. <clears throat> it's permanent style. It's like this stuff's gonna look good for a while. Remember the the things that the two things you should, women's wear is about fashion, men's wear is about style. Mm-hmm. It's a big difference. And then we were just talking earlier with I worked for Chanel for two years, and I did the men's wear. Uh, so I was back and forth to Paris, and I was at in in the studios and did a lot of research on Coco, right? And so she had what they called her British period, where she had fell in love with the Duke of Westminster, and she stole all his tweed jackets. And she fell in love, not with crazy fashion, fabric, tailoring, the things that you talk about longevity. Those days, those people passed their suits down, their their custom-made, their Savile Row suits. Expensive, yeah. They passed those down, not because it was a, they had to do it for price, but those were things of substance and permanence. Yeah. 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 I so, just got back. I, I did a tour with the fifth generation owner of Baltoli. Yeah. And he well, he joined the company with his father two years ago. Yeah. And he found these boxes in the warehouse. And it was all of his great grandfather's original patterns. Oh, my and God. And he said he spends every Saturday, like in the mornings, he goes in and he's created this archive of all of the original patterns right. of the Baltoli family, which are now 100 years old. It's amazing, isn't it? And uh, like he, he pulled out the books and we got to see him. And like that was that was That's really fantastic. Yeah. Well, and I don't know if have you done the mills? Have you done a mill thing? Well, I did uh, Horween Leather in yeah. Chicago. Yeah. I just did a huge series with Alan Edmonds, so yeah. I went into their factory and did that, and then I did Botoli, and so I went over to there. So their what factory. you need to do one of these days is you need to either go to Biela, mm-hmm. to all the the mills, and really do a mill thing because you would love it, 
or go to Scotland and go to the old mills and look at the books from 1735. Oh Listen, my God! Harris Tweed is a video that I want to do in the worst way. You got to do it because yeah. it it and Harris Tweed is very big in Japan, mm-hmm. like very big in Japan. Oh, but and you want to know something? Here in this country, people always talk about wait, 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 wait. Okay, I get it. But in Japan, which is a very mild climate, Harris Tweed's like I gotta have it because the authenticity is there. So um, there was a book. Um, what was it called? Peter May's a, a, a director, writer, um, author, and it's it's about a fabric that it's a it's a mystery around fabric. I'll try to send you. It, it, you might want to read it. It's yeah. interesting about fabric development and stuff. So kind of fun. Yeah. So, we're good. Well, when you do a Harris Tweed collection, we'll, we'll okay, we'll do it. Yeah. yeah. It's an idea right there because Tweed's a magical, magical fabric. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the trends we did um, last year was called Tweedology. It's not in this book, oh. um, but it was about the spirit of what tweed is, not just tweed itself, but so um, you'll, you'll get a kick out of this. There's a suit supply guy right there. Who is that? That's so. the suit supply. I recognize yeah. him yeah. A- anywhere. Yeah. The suit supply model. Yeah. Oh, Blake Scott. I'm friends with him. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Well, a lot of the suit supply guys are now, were my guys, like right. Gino and Mahmood. You know. Oh, yeah. Those suits just strike me as so, like, really modern. Yeah. No, they're, they're good. Well, I'm just saying that I love the fact that they use the models I used. Oh, right. <laughs> I, I'm like, somehow I've taken on that. I'm flattered that they used the guy. Well, they're good fits. We know those guys are good fits. So that's true. I do think, like, even even myself, I went from wearing really skinny and slim a few years ago, and, like, now I'm, I'm loosening it up. It seems like that's It's happening. It's and that's happening. A, but the, the thing is, like, I, I'd written um, a, a piece. I'll forward it on to you. When, I wrote it from Women's Wear. When did the skinny suit get too skinny? Yeah. Because I would, and, and Liz, would you do me a favor? Come on in for a second. I'd love to get a copy of um, the women's wear, the think tank, when the skinny suit got too skinny. Okay. Will you forward on to the guys? Sure. Yeah. You'll get a kick out of it because it's exactly that. When men's wear goes in extremes. So you can't get any skinnier or any shorter. Mm-hmm. So what happens? It's a boomerang effect. Things start to swing back the other but you know what? A little fuller pant with a pleat starts to look pretty cool. Yeah. It's you know? having a moment. It's yeah. Happen. I just got two, two pairs of trousers that have single pleat. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. 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 Well, I hope this was helpful. Yes. Extremely. Uh, and I'm thrilled that you wanted to do it. I'm sorry we had to cancel as many times. I'm sorry about the fire alarms. It happens.